Isn't God a good God? Well, that's six of us think that. How many believe that God's a good God? Let me hear your hands. Come on. He's a good God. I need to make a couple of things, uh, make you aware of a couple of things. Number one, this Wednesday is a water baptismal service, and uh, people are in the class right now. And so if you've not been baptized in water and need to be, we'll get you next time around. But come join us. It's a great night of celebration. I get saved all over again at water baptismal service. So, and I can do that because I'm an Arminian. So come on. <laughs> come on out and let's celebrate Jesus together. Also want to say thank you for all of you that helped with our uh, train Trunk and Treat Night. We had a great time ministering the community, had a number of really positive comments. My favorite moment was this little gal that stood, little girl stood about this tall, got her in on the train, and when I make the U-turn, I can see in the cars I'm waving, she sticks her head out the window and she said, can this train go any faster? <laughs> No, honey, it's got pedal to the metal. That's all we got here. So appreciated um, all that helps. So if you helped in some fashion Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday night, or if you donated candy and helped that way, would you stand up? Just want to say thank you to you this morning, all the volunteers that helped. Stand up. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a great night, a great event. Thank you. want to encourage you as well to vote on Tuesday if you're a Christian. Did I really say that out loud? That really happened. I'm going to ask you to be smart enough to vote platform, not personalities. Because our future hangs in the balance. This is a critical time for our nation. And what follows from here will be, will be impacted directly by what happens on election day. So please don't let personalities sway you one way or the other. Look at platforms and positions and let that be your guide. I do believe in voting our convictions. And so make sure that you're going that direction. Also want to say thanks to all of you for um, appreciation expressions for Pastor Appreciation Month. Appreciate all of you so much. And thank you for all you've done to make us feel like uh, that that you that we are supported and we feel that and thank you so much thank you so much we have a special guest this morning our international friend Mike Williams is going to come give Mike a big welcome this morning thank you Pastor Gary thank you Berean. Uh, it's good to be back here again. This is our home church. This is, I grew up about four miles from here, and this is where we come to whenever we're here in the States and we have some free time. This is our home. So thank you for your love. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for standing with us through all these years. We're just so blessed to be able to have this relationship with you. Um, I was reading uh, my devotions this week, came across Numbers 21, and it talks about a plague in Numbers 21, so I kind of paid a little more attention than I have in other years to, uh, to, to this. And, and in Numbers 21, there's a plague, and it's, it's devastating. Everyone's afraid. People are dying. But Moses comes up with the cure. And he says, if I, if I put a bronze serpent on a pole and lift up that pole and people look at that and have faith, then they're going to be saved. They're going to be able to live. 
And it reminded me of another plague. Well, it's not really a plague, but it's a problem that we have in this day. And that is that the coronavirus is changing the way we live. We're keeping distance. We're not, uh, we're washing our hands more. We're doing all of these things. But my fear is that plague number two, if I can't really call it a plague, but for just this, bear with me for a minute. We'll call this a plague for a moment. Plague number two is drowning out plague number three, which is the worst plague of all. See, plague number three has a 100% uh, passing rate. In other words, every person on the planet has caught plague number three. And plague number three has a 100% fatality rate. Every person that has ever been born on the planet has caught plague number three and is doomed for death without intervention. And that, of course, plague number three is sin. We all know that. But fortunately, our Savior came, was hung on a pole, and if we look to him and have faith in him, we will live. But my fear is in this day that we are letting plague number two drown out the, the urgency of plague number three. That we're so consumed with the things that are happening locally that we've lost our vision. Because Revelation 5.9 tells us that, there are, that around the throne of God there are going to be people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation standing around the throne worshiping. But the sad truth is that today, 40% of those tribes, 40% of those languages, 40% of those peoples, 40% of those nations are still waiting to hear about the cure. They're still waiting to hear about Jesus and his salvation and what he can do for them. And so as I was praying this week, I want to just encourage you to not let plague number two drown out plague number three. Let's stay fixed on the importance of bringing the gospel to the world, of fulfilling the great commission to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, especially those nations that have never had a chance to hear the gospel before. God bless. You'll want to be here a week from Wednesday when Mike will be sharing more of what he's engaged in, involved in. And the following Wednesday, you'll be hearing about a jazz concert that Mike will be doing and encourage you to be part of both of those. We want to take an offering this morning to be a blessing to uh, Mike and, and uh, Cindy Williams as they're fulfilling God's purpose in their life. And so if we could have that slide up, please. If you can, you can give online by texting the dollar sign, then the amount to Williams at 84321. The dollar sign, the amount to Williams at 84321. You can also give uh, today, cash or check, put it in an envelope, mark it Williams and put it in the offering box, or you can drop it off at the church this week, mail it in, and we'll give all of the designated offerings to um, what God's called them to do. So if you would uh, help us with that, that would be a wonderful thing. And while you're writing out those big checks, I want you to enjoy this video.
Amen. Praise him. He said, praise him. He's worthy of our praise. We've been um, enjoying a journey, or at least I've been enjoying a journey through the book of Nehemiah. I hope that you've gotten something out of it. And uh, we're in Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning. And just to rehearse a little bit of the journey, we started with Ezra in the rebuilding of the temple and then Esther's deliverance of the nation and then Ezra coming on the scene, second half of the book, restoring worship. And then Nehemiah comes to rebuild the walls. The premise that I've been trying to communicate is what God does inside the temple to restore the temple worship and the worship experience isn't complete until it reaches the city walls. It's got to impact the city. And that's what we're seeing happen in the book of Nehemiah. So at this point, the walls are built, the gates are in place, the people have settled in their towns, and then there's this supernatural move of God, a hunger that's awakened within them to come before God for the reading of the word. They recognized how desperately they needed the word of God in their lives, and they listened to that, and they repent, and they celebrate. They find the Feast of Tabernacles, and they contemplate all that God has done. So some time goes on from chapter 8, we come to chapter 9, and chapter 9 continues their spiritual renewal in what is the longest prayer in Scripture. Now, if God took this much space to record a prayer by his Spirit, how many think we ought to pay attention to that? He gives space to that. We need to listen, understand what happens here. Because there's a work of sanctifying that needs to go on in their lives that they've not yet experienced. And that's our articulated in the end of Nehemiah chapter 9. Listen to what they pray at the very end. But see, God, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. God intended for them to be in a land of promise and enjoy the benefits of the land of promise, but they're in the land of promise, but they're still slaves because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies, our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. So I want you to ponder their condition for a moment before we get into the chapter. They are in the promised land, but they are still slaves to a foreign king. They've moved into the kingdom, but they're not experiencing the benefits of the kingdom. That paradigm is portrayed clearly in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 as we've been studying that on Wednesday night. Romans chapter 6 shows the unregenerate man who needs to come to faith. Romans chapter 7 shows the carnal man that needs to be sanctified. He says, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the good I don't want to do, or the evil I don't want to do, that I find myself doing. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Chapter 6, an unregenerate man. Chapter 7, a carnal man. And chapter 8, the spiritual man, that we are more than conquerors. He talks about no condemnation, the victory there is in being led by the Spirit. The people in Nehemiah's day are in that same place. They're in Romans chapter 7. They've come into the kingdom. They've come back to the place that God has for them, but they've not experienced the freedom that God has for them. And I don't know if you've experienced that. I'm sure you have times where you've 
prayed the prayer, you've given your life to Jesus, but you still find yourself in bondage. You still find foreign kings ruling over you. You find yourself in a place where you're not enjoying the benefits that others have described as salvation. And I'm telling you that once you give your life to Jesus, there's a sanctifying work of the Spirit that goes on to change you into what God wants you to be. And Nehemiah chapter 9 shows us that journey. So I want you to engage with me on the journey. Now, before we get into that, if you have a copy of the outline, the notes, you'll find that it's much more extensive than it has been on most other Sundays. There's a lot of blanks to fill in. Apparently, there was a conversation on our team that I was made aware of. One of the individuals on our team, whose initials are Stacy Webb, <laughs> and another member of our team, whose initials are Nathan Thomas, looked at the number of slides that will be presented for you today. And the comment was made, Pastor Gary must think that since it's daylight savings time falling back and we gain an hour, that he must get to preach longer. <laughs> well, here's the problem. I preach till I'm done, but the real issue is you, don't, you stay till you're done, and it's great when those are at the same time. <laughs> We'll, tr we'll try to have that merger happen today. How do you move from being in the promised land under bondage to being in the promised land and enjoying the freedoms? And it has to do with the work of sanctification that God does by his spirit. So how does that begin? It begins with this word. The first four verses of Nehemiah chapter 9 is the, is the word separation. There's some things that you have to separate from if you're going to go forward in your relationship to God. If you want to stop consuming alcohol, you need to stop going to bars. If you want to stop smoking, you need to quit buying cigarettes. If you want to quit using drugs, you need to quit talking to the dealer on the corner. There's some things you have to separate from. The beginning of Nehemiah chapter 9, they come together in sackcloth and ashes, recognizing the trouble that they're in. They're sorrowful over their present condition. They gather together with fasting, wearing sackcloth, putting dust on their heads. Sorrow over their current condition. I will tell you that godly sorrow is the first step in sanctification. Nobody changes their behavior or lifestyle till they're sad about it. You don't change what you're happy about. You've got to be sad about it first. That's the work of conviction in your heart. And they see where they are and they feel sorrow over that. Godly sorrow works, uh, works um, repentance. And so as they're responding to the spirit of God and repenting and wanting that place of blessing back, they separate from non-Israelites. Now, let me explain that. That's not an ethnic issue. It's not a racist issue. There were two camps in Israel, those that were worshiping the God of creation, the God of Abraham, the God of heaven, and those that weren't. And those, because if you were a Gentile or you were a pagan nation, you could become a proselyte Jew. So it's talking about those who really have rejected the faith of Israel. And they're realizing that they cannot continue an ongoing relationship with those who have rejected faith and still be strong in their own faith. There has to be 
see a separation. Now, I know that we need to interact with the world. I know that we need to share our faith with lost people. But there's a place where two cannot walk together unless they be agreed. There's some relationships that can't continue on if we're going to be moving forward in our faith. And there's a time where you've got to say, for me to move on with God, there's some things I need to stop doing. There's some places I need to stop going. There's some people I need to stop fellowshipping with. That's not legalism, that's sanctification. It's a work of the Spirit to separate you from the ways and context of the world. Someone has said that when you get saved, Jesus has called you out of the world. He calls you out of the world. Sanctification is removing the world out of you, getting it out of your um, manner of living and your way of thinking. It's a process of the Spirit that needs to happen in our lives. And so the way they begin that process in sorrow and repentance is simply this. They gather together, together again for the reading of the word of God. Twelve hours was considered a day in scripture. So when you read how long they were there, they listened to the word of God being read for three hours. I would ask you if you could imagine it, but I know that you can't. I can't. Sitting there listening to it read for three hours. I have, how many of you had Bible on, in the old days on tape or on CD or on your phone or your digital device? Alexander Scorby is an is a incredible cure for insomnia. Three hours of it just being read. But when you're hungry, when you know that's what you need and the Spirit of God is moving, anything can happen. And that's followed with another three hours of confession and worship. What we've got to learn to do is let the Word of God read us while we read the Word of God. It's got to speak to us. It's got to change us. And there's got to be a hunger in us for the Word of God. It starts with separation from those things that are detrimental to your Christian faith. Then in verse 5, we get to the prayer. And I want to talk to you about the prayer as an overview before we break it down into 10 segments that happen in this time of praying. And that is that they recognize their failures, but they always celebrate God. They recognize their failures, but they always celebrate God. What do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. There isn't anywhere that they blame God for the mistakes they've made. There isn't anywhere that they blame God as being unjust for the condition that they're in. And you will never move forward in your faith as long as you have an adversarial relationship to Jesus Christ. When you are blaming him, when you're criticizing him, God, where are you? Why haven't you done something about this? Why haven't you changed this? Why are you making me go through this? You will not move forward till you accept him as the God of the universe and submit yourself to what he's doing. And the only way that that can happen is when you begin to celebrate who he is. Verses 5 to 37 is the celebration of who God is. Ten parts to that that I'm going to share with you between now and Wednesday. Oh no, we'll get done before that. Number one, verse six, they begin by recognizing him as creator. Blessed be your glorious name and may be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts 
and the earth, they begin by recognizing he created everything. He's the creator of all that we experience. Hebrews tells us that your view of creation is essential to the development of your faith. It tells us by faith we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That the beginning of faith's hall of fame starts with a correct understanding of creation. Now, I'm not going to debate with you any of the modes of creation, intelligent design, day gap theory, um, the 24-hour days, eons of time. You can believe any of those you want to believe. I believe in a God who's big enough to create the world in six literal days. That's the kind of God I want to serve who has that capacity and that power. And you can believe it however you want, but I'll tell you this. I've never in my life saw a Christian who was passionate about God who didn't accept that Jesus, that God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit were active in the creation of this world. That becomes bedrock to our faith. When I look out at the beauties of nature, I rejoice in the handiwork of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. And you can argue all you want from science and evolution and all of that. I'm not going to argue that. Bottom line, we've got to come to the same place if we're going to grow in our faith. That is, God is the creator. And we need to celebrate that. He created all things and holds all things together by the word of his power. And as such, he is exalted. You recognize it carrying his signature. You recognize it carrying his handprint. You recognize it then carrying his origin and his authority and that it all belongs to him. And if you want to move forward in your faith, start off with acknowledge him as creator of all that is. Second, it tells us that he is the covenant keeper. Verses 7 and 8, he's the covenant keeper. They begin to thank God for the provision that was made by God with Abraham. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham, brought him up of her out of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. And they're recognizing the covenant that was made. And that same covenant that we have established in Christ, when we celebrate communion, the body and blood of our Lord, what are we celebrating? That he keeps his covenant. God doesn't fail. God doesn't break his covenant. Anything he has committed himself to will come to pass. You can't look at him and say, God, you failed. You didn't keep up your end of the bargain. I'm telling you, he does. Someone help me this morning. He is the covenant keeper. What he has said will come to pass. What he has said he will perform. We can trust him for that. He is the covenant keeper. And we need to remember that. It changes everything about you. You can't blame him if you believe him as covenant keeper. You can't criticize him. You can't back up from your faith. If there's anything that has lacked, God keeps his word. He's the covenant keeper. Number three, beginning in verse nine, he's the deliverer. They're remembering in verse 9 deliverance from Egypt's bondage. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. Does anybody remember what happened at the Red Sea? Wasn't there some kind of miracle there? Something kind of weird happened? Something about water and dry ground and passing? Was that in the Bible or was that on a science fiction show? That was in the Bible, wasn't it? Come on, help me. Do you remember that story? That's a thing to celebrate. He delivered. When you're, <laughs> when you're between the devil and the deep blue sea, you can trust him to get you through. He can make a way where there is no way. He provides deliverance where there is no freedom. He will not leave you alone. He can get you. When you see
see Pharaoh's armies behind you and the sea in front of you. Don't despair. I'm telling you, he gives deliverance and will set us through to victory. I think it'd be good this morning. I wish I had time to go around the room and ask you what he's delivered you from. Every child of God should have a testimony of something he's delivered you from. Whether it was drugs or alcohol, temper, lust, whatever it was, whatever the sin is, whatever the bondage was, I ought to be able to go around and say, what has he delivered you from? What has he delivered you from? What has he delivered? And you know, whoo, I can feel the room. Do you know what happened if we just stand up and start saying that? The glory of God would move in the room. There'd be victory in the house. There'd be people dancing, running. They'd be like the guy in the video last week that YouTube kicked us off. Up, you know, Facebook here dancing. We'd have an uh, old uh, hot time in the old town, and we'd have a great time in our relationship with God because there's something powerful. When you're in a place of bondage, don't recount the bondage. When you're in a place of problem, don't exalt the problem. Begin to exalt the God who's the deliverer. Put your faith in Him. He has seen us through, and He will see us through again. He's the deliverer. Verses 13 to 15, number four. He's the lawgiver. <laughs> they talk about the law of God and water from the rock, the miracle working power of God. And as you look at what they say, you came down from Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commandments that are good. You cannot be right with the New Testament and wrong with the Old Testament. You can't even live in the New Testament if you reject the Old Testament. People say, well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. If you're living contrary to the law, you're under law. If you're not under law, it means you're under grace. What does grace do? Grace takes the precepts that were written on tables of stone and writes them on fleshly tables of the heart. And what you couldn't do because of an external, external fence holding you in is now possible by an internal power that lives from the inside out and you're able to live in the precepts. The law of God wasn't intended to cramp your style or make you miserable. It shows how wonderful our God is. Why would he say to have no other gods before for him not because he's arrogant and needs your praise it's because he knows that you'll become like what you worship and why worship something less and become less why not worship the greatest there is the God of creation and let him make you greater it was for you that he said that it was for your goodness and your benefit that he said that every one of the ten commandments was intended to reveal the goodness and greatness of God so that you would put your confidence in him and, and understand what a great and marvelous creator he is. And out of the rock that Moses uh, spoke to, water came out and brought sustenance to the nation. He is the lawgiver. He revealed his nature and purpose through the law. Number five, are you ready for this? this I'm in the Old Testament. Did anybody know that? <laughs> how many knew that? We're in, how many knew we were in the Old Testament? Because we have this, this weird mindset that the Old Testament God is angry and he's happy in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he's a mean judge. In the New Testament, he's the happy redeemer. I'm just telling you, those are people that haven't read their Bible. They've listened to some liberal theologian that doesn't know what they're talking about. Because when you read the Old Testament, you see him the way they saw him. Look at how they see him in verse 16 as the constant companion. Verse 16 says, but they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked. Has anybody known anyone like that? <laughs> Looking at you in the mirror? They refused to listen, failed to remember the miracles. They became stiff-necked in the rebellion. Therefore... 
Um, but you are a what? Forgiving God, a gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf, saying to them that when we failed, you continued to chase us. Your love is running after. It's running after me. When I fail, he doesn't run away. He runs to where I've fallen. And there he wants to meet me and lift me up because in the Old Testament he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's my constant companion in my time of trial. Yes, I can walk away. Yes, I can reject him, but he will not forget us. His love will never fail us. He will love us and reach for us and call us. And you can reject all the benefits of that, but you'll never outlast his love. We talk about the great paraclete of the book of John. One come alongside to help. That wasn't a new revelation. It was the understanding they had of God in the Old Testament, the constant companion. If you have children or raised children and they fell and scraped their knee, I'm sure you did not say to them, you stupid child, come back when you know how to ride the bike. Don't talk to me until you're not getting hurt anymore. What do you do when they fall over? You run over, don't you? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You run over and you tend their wounds and you try to help them so they not fall again and learn from that and you walk alongside of them. And I know that there are some moms who weren't good moms and you may have a bad memory, but that's the aberration. The natural nature of things is for a mom to be there to love in spite of all of the problems in spite of the failures and he's saying that God is like that we have to quit thinking that he's ticked off at us because we made a mistake we need to see him as compassionate Ooh, is there anyone in the house right now we need to see him as compassionate that he runs to our side he wants to pick us up he's there to love us and carry us through don't run from him in your trouble run toward him because he's running toward you He's running to you. He's a constant companion. Number six, <laughs> verse 22, he's the abundant provider. <laughs> now look at verse 22. You gave them kingdoms and nations allotted to them, even their remotest frontiers. They took over the countries of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the county of Og, country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky. You brought them into the land of promise. He goes on and recites all the ways that God had blessed, abundantly, abundantly, abundantly blessed them. Why is that so important? Because sometimes you need to remember what you lost. Sometimes we need to remember how he provided in earlier days. When Carol and I got married, we had a love couch. We didn't have a love seat. We had a love couch. Anybody have a love couch? Why would you call it a love couch? Because the board that should hold it up was busted in the middle. And it didn't matter how mad you were. You sit on either end of that couch, stay there long enough, you're going to slide together. We did marriage therapy. Just had them sit on our love couch. They'd slide together. We didn't need a microwave. We had a refrigerator that would do that for us. The freezer would get up to 80 degrees. It's hard to keep, it's hard to keep ice cream frozen with an 80-degree freezer. We rejoiced when God gave us money to buy a cardboard dresser at Walmart or Kmart uh, then. And so I'm saying to you, I, I remember how it was, but you know what happens? When we're desperate, we celebrate his provision. And then God begins to bless and we think it's the work of our own hands. 
We begin to take credit for the prosperity. I've worked hard. I've saved for this. And we forget how he provided. Listen, you want to get victory in your life? Remember, remember what he had done in days gone by. Remember when he was there and no one else was there for you. When you were at the end of the road and there was no solution and there was a check in the mail or somebody came by or he gave you endurance to get through. Who is he? I'm telling you that he provides with abundance. He's the one who gives us all that we need. And quit whining over your poverty. Start celebrating his abundance and you'll see the glory of God reign in your life because he is our provider, our sustainer, the giver of all good gifts. We should celebrate that. I don't know what's happening. I think I'm going to get saved all over today. I'm just telling you, you want to get sanctified, celebrate him. 26 and 27, he's the rescuer. This is a great section. 26 and 27. But they were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They turned their backs on you. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. There isn't anywhere in here that he blames God as being unjust. What do they say? We got in bondage because we sinned. Listen, the first place for you to get victory is to own where you are. The first way to get over what you're struggling with is to own that you got yourself there. You can blame others and blame circumstances for the rest of your days and you'll never find victory. And they say, because we sinned, you put us in a place of discipline. Do you know that he disciplines every son that he loves? Every vine that produces fruit is pruned so it may produce more fruit. There's a purging process. And they say, God, we recognize that because of our sins, you moved us into a place of judgment, but it doesn't leave them there. He's the rest it goes on to say but when they were oppressed they cried out to you from heaven you heard them and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies he will not leave you alone he will not leave you abandoned but when you come to yourself in the belly of the whale when you come to yourself in the middle of the fight when you're surrounded on all sides and recognize you need his help and call out to him he will rescue you is that that's good news this morning. He will rescue you. They celebrate him as the rescuer in verses 26 and 27. Verses 28 to 31, he's the restrainer of judgment. Look at verse 28. But as soon as they were at rest, they did evil in your sight. Now listen, I didn't say this first service. I'm going to try to say it carefully this service. I want to live in a land of peace and prosperity and freedom for the church. But if that environment will cause us to continue to be lukewarm, biblically illiterate, and, no, and not passionate about the things of God, then I say, God, send us persecution. Because when we're at ease... We tend to lose our edge. Now, how many heard, I'm praying for the other? I'm praying for the other. 
but whatever God does, I'm going to trust him to get us through. And when, as soon as they were at rest, they did evil again. It's the story of the judges over and over again. But what you find out in that moment is he's not angry. He's not mean. He's not hateful. He is long-suffering and loving. And, and the prayer says you would have been justified to abandon us. But you didn't. <laughs> you still loved us. He held judgment back until it disciplined them. Number nine, beginning in verse 32, he's the long-suffering lover. Now, therefore, our God, great, mighty, awesome, who keeps covenant, his covenant of love. There's nothing in here about an angry God. It's all about his love and compassion and caring. He's a long-suffering lover, mighty, awesome, keeps his covenant of love. In all that happened, all that we've been through, all of our failings, you have been righteous, but you are the long-suffering lover. I want you to think about for a moment a couple that's been married 50 plus years and they're celebrating their anniversary and how many of you have walked up to them and been guilty of saying to the wife, you deserve a medal? <laughs> Hello? Come on, help me now. What's, what do we call that? Sometimes you just recognize that somebody's been a long-suffering lover. Are you getting that? Is that coming through at all? That's God's relationship to us. He'll be there all the way to the end. He is the long-suffering lover. And then verses 36 to 37. He is the compassionate restorer. Now comes the request. There's been praise that's gone on for verses and one pause of request. But see, we're slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces because of our sins. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings. We are in great distress. What is implied in that? God, we know you're the one that restores. We're asking for your restoration. Really, the only thing the request is in verse 32 as we back up in the chapter. Now, therefore, our God, the great, mighty, awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The only thing they ask is that God would not look at it as a small thing. Would you see it how we feel, where our life is? It's a big thing to us, and I can guarantee you, if it's a big thing to you, it's a big thing to God. That's all they ask. You see, they hadn't been trained by the charismaniacs. <laughs> that you need to have 10 things you want God to do and confess those every morning. One, two, three, four, five. God, I want this, I want this, I want this. I want a new car. I want it to be blue. I want to have leather interior. I want to have heated seats. And you confess that till God does it. Sometimes when I listen to some of the things we write about prayer, I think that we think that God is mentally deficient. I mean, how in the world would God figure out how to deliver us if we didn't tell him? <laughs> God, here's what you need to do. I've got it all mapped out. Here's the strategy. Now, you'll be a success, God, if you do this. Are you hearing me now? That is not at all what happened. In fact, if you think about it, just think about it logically. How many know that we are finite? That means limited. <laughs> 
we know that God is infinite? Does it make any sense to you that finite man should even try to impose his opinions on an infinite God? That doesn't make any sense to me. It makes sense to me that finite, limited man would come before an infinite God and say, God, I confess, I don't have a clue, but you are all wisdom, you are all knowing, you are all powerful, you're everywhere present, and I'm going to cast myself into your hands. Just don't look at this as a little thing. I've celebrated everything that you are and because of that I trust that you will see us through. Glory to God and the Lamb forever. I trust you. You're the restorer. We're still slaves. We need your help. If you want to revitalize your prayer life, take those 10 areas and pray those in your relationship to God and see what he'll do. The story doesn't end there. Number three is commitment in verse 58. The problem is there is no verse 58. It was pointed out to me several times there's only 38 verses. I'm thankful people read their Bible. Yes, typo. That should say 38. Now, can we move on? That should say, that should say 38. What do they do? Oh, this is so important. They don't make demands. They simply make a commitment. They don't make demands. They simply make a commitment. Now, let me tell you the kind of commitment that I don't believe that God honors at all. People have prayed this way. God, if you will heal my kid, I'll serve you the rest of my life. God, if you give me a raise, I'll serve you the rest of my life. God, if you'll do this, I'll give you $100,000. You give me a million dollars, I'll start tithing. If you won't tithe with a hundred, you won't tithe with a million. The principle that you do something to get God to move is backwards. That's not commitment, that's manipulation. Here's commitment, God, whatever you do. As, I don't know if you just felt, whatever you do, all I ask is that you look at me and see me and I will serve you the rest of my life. As long as I know that you see where I am I will trust you the rest of the journey as long as I know that you're in the boat with me I will trust you through the storm is there anyone in the house this morning I'm telling you that he can be trusted commitment is I will serve you no matter what happens I will serve you God honors commitment so what's the process? It's simple. Separation will lead us to celebration that will move us to commitment. If you want to get rid of the ungodly king that's over you, separate, then celebrate, then commit, and you'll see God restore you in the land of promise. I'm going to ask every head be bowed for a little bit, every eye closed. And if I was a little over the top, for you today, I'm sorry you felt that way. <laughs> it's burning in my heart today for some reason. Somebody needs to hear this today. With no one looking around, if you feel like, Pastor, I'm a Christian, I'm in the promised land, I've given my life to Jesus, but I'm still living under the bondage of foreign kings. There's a stronghold in my life that's not coming down. 
I want to pray for you this morning. But the first place is for you to feel the unction of the Holy Spirit. If you need that done, you need a foreign king broken off of your life, would you just slip your hand up? I want to be able to pray for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lift your hands up. Balcony on the main floor all around. God's moving across this place. Jesus, you see our hands raised. We come to you today with sorrow in our hearts that we've allowed other kings to rule over us. And we're willing to do whatever we need to do. We know that we're not in the place you want us to be. And we know we're not in the place we want to be. God, would you do the work in our life we need to have done? We're in agreement with you today. We're in agreement with you today. Would you stand with me and lift your hands and let's just take a little bit of time, could we, to worship Jesus together? Let him do that sanctifying work. Let him begin that journey in you today. I love your voice. You have led me through the fire in darkest night. You are close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. I have lived in the goodness of God. Sing it, church.
victory can happen. Let the sanctifying work of the power of God equip you to live in victory in the land of promise. That's what he has for all of us.